Hi everyone, so we have had a dropout. Welcome to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series. This podcast series is designed to help you explore the Hi, diversity and role of invertebrate life so on this planet. You know that we had a You'll meet researchers from the School of Biological, and Earth and Environmental Sciences and invertebrate curators from Australian museums. Hi everyone, we've got uh, Laura Parker here now as well, who's going to jump into the, hi Laura, who's going to jump into this uh, discussion on on mollusks. This is to all of you. If there was uh, one thing that the world had to know about mollusks, uh, what would it be and why? Um, I guess I'll go first. I think from my point of view, the most important thing for everyone to know is I think their ecological importance, um, mollusks. So they have they provide so much um, of a benefit to the ecosystem. But I think a lot of the time people don't understand that, and because of that, they're not considered to be so important to protect. So I think for me, that's that would be the most important thing for people to know. Yeah, and, and my other sort of might just pop in there too. Um, what, what many of you may not know, then some of the photos that you, if you look at some of the bivalve mollusk section is. Many of you will view mollusks and a mollusk reef or, sorry, or an oyster reef as, as a clump of clump of oysters on rocks. Now, that, that's a historical problem in that actually oyster reefs in our... So oysters used to form really far, large reefs in our estuaries. So they're akin to the coral reefs of, of tropical systems. But they were they were fished out and removed for lime for building materials, you know, sort of 100, 100, 150 years ago. So that that habitat's actually been lost from ecological memory. So so there's only very few people that 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 know that that oysters used to form very very large reefs in the middle of sandy estuaries, and these and these these kind of oyster bombies were really important in filtering out. And keeping these estuaries clean, um, so there's a big movement globally and in Australia to, to start trying to bring back these oyster reefs. And there are some natural oyster reefs left um, around in Tower and some of the other estuaries in New South Wales. So there's quite a lot of work, and, and Laura herself is, is doing some work with trying to do some oyster restoration. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work around how, how do the remnant reefs work? What do they do? What, what services do they provide? Um, and they're bringing those back is going to be key to sort of, you know, enhancing the resilience of our estuarine ecosystems. Paul, did those, um, or do those natural reefs have a high biodiversity associated with them? Yeah, lots of, lots of invertebrates, lots of crabs, lots of fish. So they're, they're a typical habitat forming or, or foundation species that, you know, you, you put them out there and they, they provide a lot of services as well as promoting really high biodiversity. Um, how long do you think it takes from starting to restore those more natural oyster reefs through to having uh, a reef that's functioning like the ones of the past used to? How long do you think that process, or do we know how long that process could take? So we, we, we've only just started that process. So some of the, the bigger ones that have been put out in South Australia and Port Phillip Bay are probably only five or six years old. You know, they're starting to get large covers of oysters on them, but, but they're probably it's probably a 10, 20 year process to get them up to really large, mature reefs. You know, that have algae all over them, that have 
massive fish communities, but they, they're doing it pretty quickly. You know, if there's enough larvae out there, enough recruits, and there seem to be, so there's, there are, there's, there's bound to be sort of large subtitle populations of these things somewhere that are providing, you know, you know, new recruits into these new areas that are being produced. We just don't, we just don't know where they are. And will those those beds, as they start to come back into the estuaries, provide coastal protection? Yeah, so it's one of the um, one of the benefits of bringing back these natural habitat forming species because they're they're kind of a, in a way a cost effective um, approach to managing storm storms and, and with climate change and, and predicted storm frequencies and storm intensities, then then they're a really good way to to manage a whole range of ecosystem services such as storm buffering, providing biodiversity, more fish for recreational fishes. So there's a whole range of socioeconomic benefits to bring these things back into our estuaries. Nice. Is there a way people can get involved and or students can get involved and volunteer and and because it's so accessible here in New South Wales? Yeah, so once we get once we get back in, into uni, um, if anybody's interested in, in that we saw restoration space, they can just just contact me and my details are on the on, on my lectures. Um, we, we've got a range of different projects that are out in a whole range of different estuaries. So if people want to get involved, that 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 that's from taxonomic work in the lab to doing field experiments and getting out in the boats and you know getting your hands dirty in the estuaries. So there's lots lots of things people can do to get involved with. We've got a quick question here before we go over to Thomas. Um, I, I guess this is to everyone. Are there any deep sea foundational or foundation species that involve mollusks? Uh, yes, there are. There are um, deep sea mussels. Um, they form um, habitat for organisms around hydrothermal vents as well as cold seeps and deep in the ocean. Um, you know, some of them are as far as, you know, I think two and a half kilometres deep. So they're, you know, in the area where there's no sunlight. Um, they're actually really unique organisms because they don't use photosynthesis for their energy um, like other organisms um, that don't use, sorry, photosynthesis as the, the foundational um, energy source. I guess they have a symbiont relationship with bacteria. That bacteria breaks down the chemicals that are surrounding those vents or seeps. Um, and that's what's then used as their uh, food source. So, um, yeah, they're really unique organisms and, and they actually form very complex habitats down there in an environment that's so extreme you wouldn't think anything could live there. Nice, great question. Um, Thomas, anything that the world has to know that you think they have to know about mollusks from your, your perspective? Uh, I think I'll, I'll probably cheat and say two things. Uh, one is the astonishing diversity. So I don't think... A lot of people realize exactly how many different species of shelled mollusks there actually are. Uh, I think there's something like 100,000 uh, globally, and certainly even just in Australia, it's thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands. If, if you were to go down to somewhere like uh, Long Reef headland and spend an hour sifting through a five-square-metre patch of uh, shells on the shore, you can find anywhere between 200 and 300 species in just that one tiny area. Um, and so it's, it's really astonishing. The diversity, not only in terms of just how many species there are, but every imaginable shell, shape, color, size, pattern, you name it, it's out there. So it's, 
it's one of those areas, I guess, if you're into natural history and collecting where it's it's almost limitless. You could probably spend your whole lifetime out there collecting shells and you'll you'll still never see all of them, which uh, I, I very much enjoy. You know, I can go down to a beach I've been to a hundred times before and and still find new seashells I've never seen every time. So I think that's a really cool thing. And the other thing is that a lot of seashells, a lot of mollusks are actually really active, which is what I'm, I think another thing that people don't realize. So they a lot of people do associate mollusks with things like the oyster reefs uh, or limpets just sitting on rocks and kind of uh, not doing much. But there are a lot of groups that are actually quite active and are really active predators as well, I think, which is really cool. So you've got things like cone snails, uh, which use little venomous harpoons to spear fish and other little invertebrates. But you've also got this really cool group, which is my favorite group, which is the moon snails. So they're in the, a family called Natissidae. And you find them often uh, on open ocean beaches uh, or in kind of uh, semi-estuarine environments on mudflats. And they basically, they'll cruise around on the surface when there's just a very thin layer of water and they're hunting other mollusks. Uh, and they leave these really characteristic trails. So often you'll see the tide will go out and the sand will dry up and there's all these little crisscrossing trails throughout the sand. And those are often caused by these predatory moon snails that are going across the sand and hunting and They'll find some other kind of mollusk and they'll kind of envelop it with their mantle uh, and then inject, uh, pierce them with their radula, which is like the, the modified tongue in a sense, and then uh, liquefy them and then and then suck them up basically. So I, I think they're a, a very cool group of mollusks. Can I, can I ask a question? What mollusk scares you the most? <laughs> Not of Thomas, of everybody. I have to admit, if any of these were really big. <laughs> I'm just working on them. They're amazing. Can you explain them for everyone, Paul? Oh, if I could be, if, I, if I'm allowed to be crass, I can. So gooey ducks are a very large uh, infernal bivalve. So they have a typical planktonic stage. They have little larvae that float around in the water column for two to three weeks. Those, those larvae settle out onto the sediment surface. And then they start to dig down. And in that stage, they look like miniature adults. And as they dig down, they become longer and they start to widen out. So they get down to about, I know, uh, they get down to about a metre in depth, which means they have a very long siphon. And that siphon's so large that they can't pull it back into their shell. So if you pull it out and, it's, and, it's, and the siphon's fully retracted, it looks like a donkey's knob that's been stuck on top of a very large bivalve shell um, and you actually that the siphon's actually quite tasty to eat and there's there's a, an american species panopia gen, generosa i think it's called that gets up to three kilograms you know weight weights so that's a very heavy bivalve and you you, chuck, you chop the siphon off and you steam it and, the, and the, the epithelium which is the outside layer comes off and you're just left with a kind of squid-like meat underneath and you, and you just slice it up and you have it with sushi or something, and it's very tastes like scallop. So it's not a seafoody taste; it's more more of a mild, mild seafood taste. But yeah. it, it's definitely a benefit when you can eat your study organism. <laughs> I uh, did my masters on prawns, and I still can't eat them because <laughs> I lived off that. <laughs> We're afraid of nigerians and mollusks. Well, there's a couple of you know, there's a couple of really dangerous mollusks. I mean, there's there's cone shells. Um, which with climate change may, may end up coming down the coast a bit further into New South Wales. Um, but, but, you know, so also the octopus, remember, the, the, um, the cephalopods are mollusks, very, very derived and, and intelligent mollusks. 
Um, so we have, we do have resident blue blue ringed octopus, um, and and they are everywhere. So um, they're, they're kind of like sharks. They're they're there, but you don't see them. So we we quite often quite often will do be doing rock pull stuff, and you know you're sort of working through a rock pull, and all of a sudden you push the an octopus into a corner, and you know the blue rings start flashing. So oh okay, I need to need to stop now. Um, What's what's your favourite mollusk, Paul? I know Thomas mentioned a favourite, but is a blue ringed octopus your favourite? My favourite mollusk? No, gooey ducks are my favourite. Oh, they are. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Any, any mollusk that lives up, it lives up to a hundred years old, and you know, is, looks like that. Is, yeah. You know, you um, play anything, you study for it long enough, and you just begin, you become attached to it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's a couple of blue ring octopus stories popping up in the chat. Um, someone certain they had a similar story with a blue ring, grab a patch of seagrass that crawled across my arm. And yeah, a couple of comments about seeing videos of tourists playing with blue ring octopus. I hate to watch those videos. Is <laughs> that one story? Is that the story of one person that survived a blue ring octopus um, bite? And the I think the story goes that. They basically, he died or they died many, many times, but they managed to revive the, the person enough that the, that the liver had been able to detoxify the toxins that, yeah. that they eventually recovered. Laura, just quickly, a favourite mollusk while we're still talking about favourites? Um, well, I obviously have a soft spot for oysters. <laughs> um, yeah, I love them despite years of working on them. Uh, um, but other than oysters... Uh, I think I love cuttlefish. I love cuttlefish um, octopus. I just think they're amazing. They're so intelligent. Um, the fact that they can change colour, um, yeah, I just think that they're quite incredible organisms. Yeah. Um, a question that's in the chat, with microplastics being such a prominent marine problem and mealworms supposedly having a plastic breaking enzyme, what applications do you think that enzyme or any potential plastic breaking enzymes might have on the aquatic world. Uh, will we be able to introduce that? Oh, will we be able to introduce that gene into um, oceanic creatures and have them filter the oceans? Wow, cool. That's a scale problem, right? I mean, you could yeah. probably do it at, at smaller scales, but I mean, plastics is a massive global problem. Um, and there's probably some some ethical issues around introducing those genes everywhere. I think we'd have to get to some sort of massive ecosystem collapse before we allowed that to happen in some way. But there's probably some some local environment, local reasons it could be done. Um, how how much of a problem are plastics for filter feeding things like oysters and that in the natural environment? Do do you guys have an answer to that one? Are they accumulating plastics? In the natural environment, I'm not too sure at the moment. I know that there's studies that have been done on them in the laboratory and they do accumulate them. Mm. Um, I think there's not a great deal. Um, I do know of study on oysters that looked at adult oysters accumulating them during their conditioning process affected them and they found a lot of negative impacts on their physiology. Um, and But I think to my knowledge, I know in Australia there is perhaps one study that's come out to show accumulation in the environment, but I think 
levels that, that they're using in the laboratory are much higher than what yeah what so seeing in the environment. So bivalve so bivalves have a really good filtering mechanism on their gills. So they 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 can filter particles at, at two or three different spots. So you know, so bivalves aren't aren't obligate feeders. It's not whatever comes in, they have to feed on. They're actually really good at filtering out different things. So I imagine that they're really good at filtering out these these types of these types of plastic particles and saying, no, I don't want this. I'm gonna I'm just gonna expel it as pseudo fecal material. But in a lab situation where you give it lots, you can clog the gills and you can do a whole lot of other things other things to them so it would be really interesting to follow up because most people are focused on fish and and other, other higher organisms in terms of problems with plastics aren't they i think nice um there's a question here were beaks the best mouth part for the octopus to evolve with if not what would be a better mouth part for octopus <laughs> if you could re-engineer octopus would you change their mouth part anyone want to <laughs> that one? I think it's evolved for a reason. So it's probably got the best mouth part that it that it requires for for how it feeds and, and what it does. Right? <laughs> so what 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 would be the strangest mouth part we could give it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, rebuilding the mollusks. Yeah. <laughs> Alex has written um, have to try being a mollusk for a day. Yeah, try it out and see how it goes. <laughs> you never know; they could be very frustrated. I had a um. Some undergraduate students a few years ago did little, did little, um, did little projects on the rocky shore, and a couple of students did. They wanted to know whether um, octopus boldness related to their intelligence. So what that so boldness is just how how quickly or or, or not quickly organisms react to something. I, I guess in a way it's a, it's a behaviour thing. So what they did is they took um, they went up to a whole range of rock pools around Sydney. And then when they when they saw an octopus in the in a, in a in a rock pool, they went up to that rock pool and they put their hand near the octopus and they timed how long it took the octopus to get curious and come out and touch the hand. And they used that as a as a measure of boldness. So if you put your hand in some octopus, would you know would immediately come out and touch you and, and see what you were. Others would be quite reticent and take a few minutes to do it. So then they what they did is they they put a fish in a jar and they put holes in the jar. And that we use that as a as a as a kind of test for how quickly they could solve the problem. And they would put that jar after after they did the touch test, they would put the jar in the um, in the pool. And they would once the once the octopus took the jar, they timed how long it took it to open up, unscrew the jar, and get the fish out. And there, and there was a really really strong correlation between fast octopus that touched you quickly and how quickly they opened up up the jars. We were, all, we were always really keen to follow up and do some more of that, but, um, but we never got around to it. I thought it was quite neat. Oh, it must be fascinating to work on a study organism that's that smart. <laughs> I, I had like a, a similar-ish experience where I was in a, a rock pool on the mid-north coast, like a series, like a big rock platform, and there was this really big overhang where the, it was like all rocks and then a, kind of like a cave under it. And it was quite deep water and dark and you couldn't really see. And so I bent down to have a look under and I thought it was a sea snake. So just this single long thing came out and it was moving exactly like a snake. Uh, and I, I almost had a heart attack and fell back into the water. And it turns out it was an octopus. Just when it saw me coming, it put out just a single tentacle uh, outside the cave. I, I don't know if it was trying to mimic 
a sea snake because obviously you've got things like the mimic octopus, but it, it, it only put one arm out and then did a very convincing sea snake movement <laughs> that looked exactly like how it would swim through the water. And then once I splashed around a bit, it kind of came out, scuttled around a bit and then, and then jetted off. I have a mental image of this octopus just chuckling away. <laughs> Can octopus chuckle? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hi, everyone. It's Nathan, the podcast producer. We're just letting you know that we had a dropout at this moment in the podcast, and we're picking it up back here with Tracy talking about oyster shells. Wow, that's that's interesting. I didn't know you could do that. So when you when you're looking inside an oyster shell, can you did you say you can see the those growth rings? I'm not sure you see it, but this is a this is a cross section of a an oyster shell. You can't really see it. Sorry, of a clam shell, but in it it's got micro micro lines, and you can see them under a microscope. So for some for some subtitle clams, they're laid down annually. Um, because of different growth, because they grow at different speeds in winter versus summer. So the density of the shell changes and the color of that, that color changes. So you can count the color lines, color bands. Some mollusks and some bivalves lay them tidally. Some lay them on lunar cycles. So um, unpicking what the lines mean can be, can be, quite, can be quite complicated. I think... Um... It's quite interesting how quickly they can lay down that shell as well. During the experiments we have in the laboratory over a period of eight weeks, some of them put down, you know, somewhere between half a centimetre to a centimetre of frill, which is shell growth, so a very thin layer of shell growth on, on the outer edges of the, the shell where it's expanding. Um, so it's, it's quite unbelievable to see just how quickly they can put that shell on. Nice. Do you use that in experiments as a way to track what's happening with the, the oysters at all, whether they're doing well in an experiment or doing badly, how, how much they're growing? For me, definitely. Um, one of the most important things or the, the, the worst impacts of ocean acidification is that it impacts that shell development, their calcification. Uh, so we definitely look at the growth of the oyster um, Typically, in most of the oysters we've tested, growth, shell growth is reduced when they're exposed to those conditions. So in terms of when we're looking at breeding for oysters that are more resilient or doing better under those climate change stresses, uh, one of the main things we look for is an oyster that's able to grow better. Um, and you can also, with Paul talking about looking at, you know, looking at the different growth stages, one thing that we can do with the oysters is you can label the oyster shell so um, you put it uh, use a, a chemical to label the shell before you start an experiment and then you can actually look specifically under a microscope um, at at the shell that has been laid down during the experiment and um, in things such as ocean acidification experiments you'll see that the shell usually has a nice structure like a brick-like structure when it's being laid down but under ocean acidification, those bricks don't be, they aren't laid as well and they start becoming um, more haphazard in their structure. Uh, so you can start to see how they are affected and how badly that shell, shell calcification is affected. In selecting those, those oysters for replanting to recreate the, the natural oyster beds, are you looking for ones that are going to be more resilient to what was projected in the future? 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So at the moment we're going through, we have um, access to what's called family lines of oysters, of Sydney rock oysters. Um, and each of these family lines are genetically distinct from one another. So they can perform slightly different. So we go through um, test a, a range of them. So in the last experiment, we had over 40 of these family lines that we exposed. And then we look at all of those different aspects of them, like their shell growth and then what's happening in their blood. And we pick the ones that are doing the best and use those ones to then transplant out into the field. Do we know how um, heritable those traits remain under different pressures? That's one of the, that's our next question at the moment. So that yeah, that's one of the things we're looking at at the moment. So um, in our last experiment, something that we're really interested in is their metabolic rate under these stresses. Uh, but until recently, we had no understanding of where, whether that was a heritable trait. So whether we could then use the breeding program to enhance that into the future. So with that particular trait, we've just got some evidence now to show that it is quite heritable. So it is something that we should be able to use the breeding program on to further improve in the future. And so we go through and look at all of the traits to, to try and determine yeah, what the heritability is of each of them. Um, guys, have you got any questions uh, related to those pressures and, and doing experiments that influence the biology of, of mollusks? And one of the one of the great thing about things about mollusks, and I mean, I started off working on aquaculture and fisheries, but I moved much more into the ecology of of systems. And mollusks have been really, really, they're really cool to work with because when they're stressed, they partition energy really quickly, so they'll shift things from reproduction to growth in ways that are really easy easy to measure. So they're really good organisms um, to understand environmental change. And, and, and they're often used as sentinels of, of, of environmental change in different ecosystems as well. Can you explain for everyone what you mean by sentinels? Um, you know, often, often with environment, environmental stress and climate change, we, only look, we can only see a change in a system once it's changed. So once, once things have died, and by that stage, it's too late. It's like, well, look, the system's changed. It's like, well, okay, well, what, what do we do now? Um, so what, what we're sort of eternally searching for are organisms that give us a, a heads up that things are changing. And, and one way to do that is to look for shifts in the life history, like the growth of reproduction species before they die, because things should change their life histories before they die. So they should go through this period of, you know, I want to I kind of, I want to say suffering before they die. So if we can pick up, if we can pick up how organisms are changing, then the, as early indicators of change, then we're in a better position to know when things are changing and, and to be able to do something about it. Um, so we're always looking for species that can that, that respond quickly and um, in constant ways to environmental change. And I guess that's what we mean by sentinels, the kind of early indicator species that might be indicative of change that we can, that we can use to help, help interpret how environments are changing. That must be really challenging with the huge diversity in the mollusks to, to be able to identify the organisms, then know what's normal for them, and then also be able to know what which ones are, are changing in subtle ways. Yeah, and I think, you know, as researchers, you can you can look at the literature and there's been there's been 60, 70, you know, there's probably hundred years worth on searching for these types of species, but no one's settled on one yet. Right. Um it's like, well, come on. <laughs> We've done a lot of work. Which which ones we know that we know that 
bivalves accumulate toxins, so they're indicators of toxins, and they're used that way. You, you can, and we use them in beaches, and you know, for fecal coliforms, for heavy metals, fish are used in the same way. Um, we, we're yet to take that kind of step to well, what about larger scale? What about other issues like climate change and and where the where the it's we're relying more on um, like changes in reproduction or growth rather than saying we can measure toxins in something as an indicator of something because that's easier to do because you're looking for a specific toxin in something. But when you're looking for a life history change, then you really need to know the organism. And as you know, mollusks are incredibly what we call plastic. They change their shape in many different environments and it doesn't have to be due to human-induced stressors. It's, it could be growing in a different area because the rock pulls deeper or it's cooler. You know, so yeah. what we call incorporating all that spatial variation and and how things grow is difficult and challenging. In selecting those species and those life history traits, are there particular traits or characteristics that you would look for as these are the ones to target if we're going to, um, you know, select criteria for sentinel species? Um, what do you think, Laura? I think it probably... If you knew if you knew a little bit about size, because size is an easy thing, it's got to be easy to do. It's got to be measurable. Um, you know, you don't if, if an area is stressed and you don't have too many left, you don't want to have to you don't have to kill them to do things to them, right? So probably probably size. Is, you know, if you know in a certain area they should be a certain certain size, and all of a sudden they're half the size, then the you know you probably got a good good indication that something's changing yeah I think I think that's exactly right and then I, I think if you're wanting to do things like uh, especially understanding the risk of an environmental stressor if you if you're thinking about a life history trait within an organism many mollusk species appear to be the most vulnerable during their early life history stages so what, what Paul was touching on earlier that those stages where they're swimming around in the water column uh, before they settle out that appears for many species to be kind of the bottleneck or the, the most sensitive stage in their development in terms of environmental stresses. So I think that's often a really good place to start when you're trying to understand the sensitivity of organisms to a particular stress. Um, Thomas, um, any last comments on, as as we're all coming out of lockdown and people are starting to get back into, you know, the favourite places on shorelines and things, if the students are out on beaches. What should they be looking out for for getting to know some of the diversity of different mollusks that they'll come across as shells on beaches or rocky platforms? Uh, so I guess it depends kind of what your favourite flavour of mollusks is, whether it's <laughs> it's bivalves or gastropods. So if you're if you're more bivalve minded and you're interested in in cockles and mussels and clams, then the best way to get those while beach combing is on these open ocean beaches because a lot of these bivalves live buried in the sand uh, offshore. Um, and so I usually find that when I go on open ocean beaches, the bivalves tend to be the, the most common and the biggest deposits. Uh, not they, I find, at least around Sydney, that they don't tend to be as many species, but in terms of abundance, there are certainly more. Uh, whereas if you're looking for gastropods, then certainly all the rock pools and the rock platforms are fantastic uh, for both herbivorous and carnivorous little gastropods. Uh, and so, as I mentioned earlier, if, if you literally just go to somewhere like um, the southern end of Maroubra Beach, actually is pretty good, uh, or Long Reef, 
uh, or the northern end of Mona Vale Beach. Uh, they've all got uh, quite nice rock platforms and rock pools. Uh, and you just go along the strand line where there are some big shell deposits and you just get down on your hands and knees in the sand and, and you spend an hour or two and, and you'll find several hundred uh, species of seashell. Uh, and so that's a, you'll, you might have a sore back uh, and knees afterwards, but I, I always find it worth it. But that's the same when you're on rocky shores or sandy beaches. It's take your time. Don't don't walk around. Sit down in a pool and 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 search because there'll be a lot more than than what you think. Exactly. That, exactly. Yeah, that's been a really common theme in a lot of these discussions. Is is how to get your eye in and start to look at nature from that perspective and what to observe. So, any other any tips you have for how people can do that for looking at mollusks, Paul? Part of it is just, is just going out repeatedly and getting a mental picture for things. So, you know, you'll go out, you'll find a couple of things and then you'll always see them and then you build kind of, you, st- you, keep, you keep building on it and you'll see more than a couple of things, you'll see lots of things and you'll get a mental picture for things and all of a sudden, you know, the, the little things that like like shades or darker things you'll, will just resolve themselves, always resolve themselves into, into, into animals. So it's really just about spending time out there, taking your time. But it's also, um, you don't need to dive to see most of the biodiversity in the oceans. You know, a good snorkel around Sydney, and you'll see most of what you need to see. Just take your time, get in there, you know, pull the seaweed apart, you know, um, just just take make the effort to, to really slow down and, and try and find things and, you, and, you, and, and you'll get there. Here's a, a question about the restoration of oyster reefs, and I know it's, you don't want to get too close up, to, to oyster reefs in terms of walking, but for snorkeling around them, is there is that something that would be interesting to do? Some of these natural reefs to see the biodiversity. Bit of an out there question. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is you, you have to get out to the middle of the estuaries to do that. So it's not yeah. the easiest. They're not the easiest places to get to. So the, the the remnant reefs that are around tend to be in out of the way places that people don't go to yeah. anyway. Um, I mean, you, you get habitat-forming species, you know, mussels and and kanjivoy, you know, not not mollusks, or, um, but on on the rocky shores and lots of other places where you'll see yeah, just kelp, kelp beds with lots of fish around. Um, you'll see some of the things and um, up here around Brisbane, around Brisbane Water, which is a massive um, estuarine area north of Sydney we see lots of beds of oysters um along the shoreline and yeah I've never actually I've never thought of just stopping and looking at what's living in amongst those those big you know kind of beds of oysters which are you know we paddle past them regularly yeah there's probably three or four key mollusks gastropods that are in there lots of crabs um a lot of those oysters are associated with mangroves new metaphors um so there's really interesting interactions going on between mangroves and oysters all these kind of complex habitats all sort of working together and and that's one of the challenges for us in ecology we tend to think of working in our own little habitats someone works on mangroves someone works on oysters someone works on mussels but you go to things like estuaries and they're actually they're all connected so the things that are oysters are using the mangroves and things in the mangroves are using the oysters and you know trying to build a picture of our ecosystems that integrates all these things is as a way forward, but very, you know, very challenging way to do ecology. Uh, Laura, any last comments for the students um, with recommendations for understanding oysters or, or what they should take away from from this week? Um, 
No, I just think, I mean, I just think reiterating what Paul and Thomas were saying, I think, you know, away from oysters, mollusks in general, um, I mean, one of my favourite things to do is is go with the family and, and look at rock pools and could spend hours, hours doing that. Um, I think one of the big differences for me when I started, I've always liked to do that, but one of the big differences for me when I started this work was, you know, I'll see oysters now when looking when I'm on a rock platform and see them there and they just mean so much more now, you know, they're not just something that's sitting there on a rock. I, I think how good it is that they're there and, and the importance that they're, you know, they're providing to, to that habitat there. So I think just becoming more aware when you're seeing these organisms, um, what they do and like Paul was saying, how they're all, you know, interacting together. Um, I think that that's just, it's really good to kind of see mollusks in that light when you're, when you're visiting, yeah, the marine and the marine habitat. Fantastic. Thanks. Can I just jump in with one last thing? So as we're starting to get towards summer as well, one thing that's always really cool to look out for on the beaches is the blue fleet. Uh, So this is this really cool assemblage of blue and purple organisms, uh, including mollusks, which all kind of live on the surface of the ocean. uh, And they all have interactions with each other. A lot of them are predators and the others are prey. So these are things like uh, blue bottles, uh, by the wind sailors, blue buttons, all these cnidarians that are floating on the surface. But then you've also got the the sea slugs that are in the family Glaucidae, so Glaucus and Glaucilla. Um, so they're, they're, you'll, you'll probably have seen photos of them on Instagram or social media. They're often called sea lizards or um, sea dragons, uh, even though that's also a fish. Um, and they actually feed on the blue bottles uh, and the other cnidarians and then accumulate their toxins. And then you've also got the violet, uh, the violet sea snails, uh, which are the janthenas. They're this absolutely vivid purple, and they float along uh, upside down on the surface of the water as well. And they're also preying on uh, the blue bottles and things like that. And you get four or five species of those sea snails washing up. And so often, once you see one of those things wash up, you'll see all of them wash up on the beach. Uh, so they're a really cool thing to look out for as we head into the summer months. Is all these amazing purple and blue organisms washed up onto the beach. Thank you for listening to the Pod the Lab Invertebrate Biology Series podcast. For any more information regarding the content in this course, please email me at tracy.ainsworth at unsw.edu.au.